Welcome to another episode of Health Creators. This is Liv, and I'm joined here today by Sumner, founder and CEO of Forest Neurotech. So can you start by giving us an elevator pitch of what Forest does? Sure. Uh, there are about 21 million people in the United States that live with severe treatment-resistant forms of psychological disorders, injuries, mm-hmm. things like depression, anxiety, pain. And right now, if you fail all of those drugs, uh, there are neurotechnologies that can help you, but, and some of them are amazing. They can reduce your tremor associated with Parkinson's. Mm-hmm. They can help with OCD, but they're very few and far between. And the reason why they don't help with most of these disorders is because they can't interact with the whole brain. Yeah. So Forest Neurotech's mission is to create a minimally invasive platform to read and write to the entire human brain so that we can create a platform for research, discovery, and treatment of all of those diseases. Cool. So today we wanted to talk about less invasive brain-computer interfaces. Mm-hmm. And to begin with, I think it'd be good to first help people understand BCIs in general, right? So why are they so invasive today? There are invasive BCIs and there are non-invasive BCIs out there. And there's a trade-off between the performance of those. So non-invasive BCIs will sense the kind of summed activity of many millions of neurons because as the neurons in your brain are active, they create voltage potentials and magnetic fields, but they're really small. So they're hard to detect Mm. from outside the head. But if you're willing to, put, to do a surgery, put a hole in, and then actually insert electrodes deep into the brain or into yeah. the cortex, you can start to actually listen to single neurons firing. Now, that is a really high fidelity signal. You can use that for really incredible things, controlling motor neuroprosthetics, yeah. uh, creating visual prosthetics, a host of uh, applications that are coming up now that we can talk about. But that trade-off has always been pretty extreme. What Forrest is doing is trying to bridge the gap between those. Yeah. Is there a space that's minimally invasive, that's less harmful to, to the brain, that doesn't damage any neurons upon insertion, that can remain implanted for idea, ideally decades or longer, yeah. and can see much more of the brain than these electrodes right now, which can only see tiny, tiny portions, but with incredible kind of microscopic detail. Interesting. And is the idea to get to like wide scale adoption? We see companies like Neuralink and there's a lot of media and press around it. But obviously with a solution that is pretty invasive like Neuralink, it kind of reduces the rate of adoption, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's all about risk reward trade off. So things like pacemakers are adopted wide scale because the reward is a longer life and people are willing to have a surgery or an implant to do that. Mm -hmm. So we know, and there are many precedents for this in the medical space, but what we're talking about with companies like Neuralink, again, is something that's extremely invasive. You're actually inside the brain. And that poses some real problems from a really practical standpoint. Right now, invasive electrodes only last about five years. We don't know how long the Neuralink ones will, but Mm. their closest counterpart that's available today, and in fact, the only commercially available BCI or uh, the only FDA-approved BCI is the Utah Ray from BlackRock Neurotech, and that lasts about five years in humans. And that's not long enough. So you need them to last longer, but ultimately you need them to spread widely across the brain, and that's Mm. a really big delivery problem. Right now, we can only get them to really small portions because you have to open up the skull to put them in. Mm. Not only the skull, but the dura, this kind of protective membrane around the brain. And so you're really limited in where you can put them. And that's fine for things that are really limited in scope. So the motor system's kind of very localized, the visual system's kind of very localized. 
But if you want wide-scale adoption, it's all of these psychiatric and cognitive disorders. The number of people with depression, anxiety, bipolar disorder, mm. those outnumber the number of people with severe paralysis or blindness yeah. by an order of magnitude. And that's the kind of population that neurotechnology has struggled to, to reach so far. So the idea with forest, I believe you're using ultrasound essentially mm -hmm. to cover a larger portion of the brain. And by using essentially three, two or three devices within mm -hmm. the skull, but not actually within the brain, you're able to A, cover more of it and create B, a stronger signal. Yeah, that's right. So we're using ultrasound physics and a breakthrough in ultrasound physics that occurred mm -hmm. about a little over a decade ago. So it's still quite recent in terms yeah. of science advances, right? Uh, that allows us to read the function of the brain. And yeah. during my time at Caltech, we scaled that up into large animals. We increased the sensitivity. We got it to the point that we could actually pull the ultrasound data out of the yeah. brain and in real time infer what the intention of that animal or human actually was. Mm -hmm. And so that's a really big jump forward and the basis for a BCI. The cool thing about ultrasound is that you can program it and you can steer it uh, with in just totally in software. So you have these phased arrays where you have many, many transducers. They all mm -hmm. kind of, again, like you said, they sit outside the brain but inside the skull. We can talk about yeah. why it doesn't work through the skull in a minute. Yeah. And then we can sort of steer it around in the brain. We can spread that beam out and get kind of you know, more diffuse images, but ones that give you a wider field of view. Or we can focus it down and get a more precise image. Yeah. And then the really cool thing about ultrasound is that if you keep focusing it down and then use the right pressures and parameters, you can actually uh, induce neuromodulation. So now you're not mm. only reading brain activity, but then you're actually changing that brain activity. And you can do that in closed loop and start driving the brain state in different directions. You mentioned closed loop a lot yesterday, but I don't quite understand mm. what you mean by that. Yeah, so you can imagine if you sat down at a computer with a, a mouse mm -hmm. and you didn't have a monitor, you could make a guess that like, I'm moving to the right, I'm moving to the left, but you would never be able to click on an icon. You'd kind of be mm -hmm. searching in the dark, right? Yeah. And so a closed loop interface is anyone yeah. where you're taking that feedback and adjusting the input in mm -hmm. closed loop. So you are moving the cursor, you have the vision of seeing the cursor moving across the screen and you, maybe you're yeah. a little too high or a little too low, and then you kind of adjust as you do that. And we all do this quite naturally. So for example, if you think about picking a up a cup of coffee, my initial movement is kind of open loop. I just throw my arm out mm. there. But then as I get closer to the cup of coffee, now I have to use vision or you know, the proprioception of my arm or the sense of touch on my fingers. That's yeah. giving me feedback about am I in the right place and do I need to adjust? And so then it becomes mm. a closed loop problem. Same thing as I bring that to my mouth. I'm using all of these senses to do it. If you take the senses away, we actually see this in deafferented people. Yeah. It's a severe disability. So that's a, that's a really difficult thing. You can't go through bone with ultrasound. Is there another way we can do that, like via infrared maybe? Mm -hmm. Because again, with widespread adoption and trying to be as minimally invasive as possible, I'm thinking about can we put basically these signal readers, projectors into like outside of like a, a even close to your brain surgery. Yeah, as you said, the less invasive we can make this, the better. Yeah. And there are technological problems and there are physics problems. And technological problems usually get solved with time. Moore's law helps you mm. along. 
And those are the sorts of things that we really want to use and count on. But in spaces where you have a physics problem, you're really reliant on breakthroughs in science. And sometimes yeah. you can outright prove that it will never be possible. Mm. So with ultrasound, as an example, you can, you can actually get ultrasound through the bone, but there yeah. are some limitations. So focused ultrasound as a neuromodulation technique has been done non-invasively for a long time yeah. now by other researchers. And in that case, it sort of works because you can take a really large array yeah. and focus a lot of energy down through the skull and it kind of gets aberrated. So that wave front gets kind of messed up. Yeah. It gets attenuated. Some of it gets reflected back. So you lose a lot of power. But as that focus comes together, you can more or less get some energy into the brain to neuromodulate. Yeah. And we know that that works. And in fact, there are companies that use ultrasound to ablate tumors or ablate uh, regions of the brain that they know to be associated with Parkinson's disease and tremor. So yes, you can get ultrasound through the skull in those cases. Mm. It requires that ablation technique that I was talking about requires uh, magnetic resonance guidance. So you actually yeah. are in an MRI machine. And that makes it a very inc incredibly expensive and you know, very mm. niche procedure. Uh, it's not something you're going to take home anytime soon. But if you want to image, the problem gets really bad because now mm -hmm. you don't want to focus energy. What, one of the things that we rely on to get the functional images out of the brain, to understand what the brain is doing, not just a picture of it, yeah. is that we use repeated pulses really fast. Yeah. And to do that, we use plane waves. So we're sending these kind of flat waves, which are already not ideal for going through the bone because they don't have a lot of energy focused yeah. behind them. And then you have the problem two ways. So you go in through the bone and then you're listening for the echoes, the information coming back out of the brain. And that's what you listen to. Mm. And so now not only does the ultrasound wave have to go in in a very diffuse way, it has to come back out in an even more diffuse way. And all of that energy is lost. There is a l one exception to this, which is you can use super resolution techniques. Yeah. So there's always in these types of physics a trade-off between space and time and your sensitivity. Yeah. And so you can give away time and say, okay, we're gonna just take a bunch of images and we're gonna repeatedly scan the brain for minutes on end or potentially hours on end. And in these cases, they usually use contrast enhancement too. They'll put micro bubbles mm. in your bloodstream, which causes, a, they're, they're a big reflector of ultrasound. And so that actually enhances the signal. And then you can record for a few minutes and you can create a very beautiful spatially resolved picture of the brain non-invasively. But the temporal nature of the brain is the functional nature, right? Our brain, as we yeah. think, as we are using our cognition, that brain function is what we want to see. So we can't give that up. So I always have to have that caveat because it's a really cool area of research for angiography. If you just yeah. want to measure uh, what, a, what blood flow is doing or what a, uh, the neurovasculature looks like, but it doesn't help us very much with function. Well, what are the limitations to a less invasive process? You're not drilling into the brain. We're now putting ultrasound around the brain. Mm -hmm. um, but what are the limitations to that, um, to what you're offering versus what Neuralink, for example, would offer? Yeah, so we're reliant on hemodynamics, blood flow, mm -hmm. essentially. That's important because as neurons are active, they use metabolic resources yeah. like oxygen, and that's resupplied via the bloodstream. So if you measure the bloodstream, you can infer the neural activity that caused that change. Yeah. Now, that's great, except there's a delay. So as your neurons are active with an electrode, we can measure those changes on milliseconds or tens of milliseconds, mm. so pretty quick. Uh, but if you are waiting for that blood flow change to happen, that takes about a second and a half before you kind of see this rise in blood flow. 
and it peaks about five seconds later. So that's the delay we're talking about is on the order of seconds. Yeah. That is not useful for motor prosthetics. So if you're, mm. imagine you're moving a mouse again, right? Yeah, at a computer five seconds. screen, And it's like yeah. you move right and then you have to wait like two or three seconds mm. for this thing to like catch up and yeah. then adjust. You're going to be there all day like circling around this icon and you're going to get frustrated and throw the mouse out the window. So it's not great for motor prosthetics or anything that happens super fast. But what we are good at are things that happen widely throughout the brain that change slowly over time. Yeah. Things like psychiatric disorders. But with psychiatric disorders, there's a lot of like also thoughts involved, right? The thoughts are almost instantaneous. And then you also have like like the pre-trigger to dopamine, for example, when you when you are addicted to something, for mm -hmm. example. So how would you be able to predict things like that if if it's like a magnitude of five seconds? Like, yeah. Yeah, so we're yeah. not looking for those kind of second-to-second -second mood mm. changes, which are real, but those also create this kind of cumulative, much more yeah. uh, low-frequency change over longer periods of time. Uh -huh. So the same way that, you know, like, and to be clear, like, if we want to compare to the state-of-the-art right now, yeah. things like SSRIs, pharmaceuticals, what you do is you go to your doctor, they give you a drug, you come back in weeks, months later, yeah. they say, how are you feeling? Well, self-report is not a very good, reliable feedback. Yeah. Like this, right? It's almost too fast. Maybe they're just having a bad day. Yeah. Or maybe they're having a particularly good day and their self-report mm. skews incorrectly. And then you're only getting feedback once in a snapshot in a doctor yeah. visit every now and then. What we want to do is take that a step further and say, okay, maybe we're not measuring second to second, but yeah. we do want to see this kind of rolling average over time, what's happening on this time course of weeks or months, and let's keep track of that. And then from there, in the future, let's now in closed loop start to push that brain state back towards what we think is adaptive. Interesting. And measure that effect, and this is where the closed loop comes in. The system yeah. is now saying, oh, that looks good, or oh, that's headed the wrong way, let's adjust. That's cool. So it's almost like, let's start by creating a new class of biomarkers, Yes. and then we can actually use those biomarkers and tracking that does not currently exist on current psychiatric medications, on current CNS drugs, to figure out what is it actually doing over time, ambulatory mm -hmm. monitoring, which doesn't exist right now. Yeah. And then from that point, be able to say, okay, these are the mechanisms of which we actually see change, mm -hmm. and therefore let's target those instead of all of the dirty effects that psychiatric drugs currently have. That's, that's exactly right. And I don't want to <laughs> say that this is going to be easy, and we yeah. can talk a little bit why we structured this as a research organization, yeah. because it allows some of this exploratory science to happen. But yeah. there is an entire backlog of literature both in single unit electrophysiology, so putting mm -hmm. dozens of kind of needles into the brain using stereo yeah. EEG, and a much even bigger literature bank in the functional MRI space, so measuring mm -hmm. brain states. Looking at population levels, you can see that, you know, on, on, the a on average, in a group of uh, patients with severe treatment-resistant depression, yeah. you can see biomarkers. But those fMRI is not sensitive enough, or you mm -hmm. can't get enough data to look at one person and say with enough certainty that this is the biomarker that we yeah. should trust. Or that you can't use it really as a diagnostic or monitoring or in any closed loop way because you can't send the person home. Mm. And as you said, we've never really seen these brain states in the wild. That's the yeah. craziest thing to me. We have all of this technology and, and the most amazing things that humans have done. Yeah. And this thing, psychological disorders that are affecting 
individuals and mm. societies when scaled up, right? This is a huge problem, one of the biggest humanity faces, and yet we've never even seen it. Yeah. We get like a snapshot in the scanner for 30 minutes maybe, which is a really unusual environment. You know, you're lying down in a really noisy, claustrophobic bore of a scanner. Mm. That's a very unnatural environment to measure those. So for me, like the most exciting thing coming up in the you know, next couple of years is we might actually start to see what does a psychiatric state look like in the brain yeah. while a person's going about their daily life. We've never seen it. Uh, we talk a lot about closed loop versus open loop mm -hmm. in BCIs. But zooming out a bit in terms of building, you know, a startup or building what Forest is, just like a FRO, which she kind of explained yeah. to me. Let's talk about how you can close the loop in building a company. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Interesting. I'd have to think about that a little bit. So I guess it really, again, anything that has feedback and you adjust based on that feedback is the simplest yeah. definition of closed loop. So for us, I guess a focused research organization is extremely closed loop. All businesses should be. But in our case, we are developing a nonprofit research organization that is highly engineering driven towards yeah. a single goal, building this platform technology. We are then working with clinicians and researchers around the United States and hopefully beyond who are going to test this in various different indications yeah. and, and disorders. And then we're going to listen to their feedback. They're going to say, it worked quite well for this, or it's maybe really mm. good at detecting this biomarker that we've always thought would be detectable. Or maybe we've just found something totally new that we didn't expect, yeah. and that's often the case with science. The FRO is specifically designed that we're not locked into, here's our FDA pathway, here's our indication, yeah. we have to nail it, and we've got three years to get an ROI mm. to our investors. That's not the case. We're going to listen to our clinicians and researchers, we're going to hear them out. We're going to say, these are the groups of indications that show the most promise. And we're going to start updating the platform to optimize for the yeah. biggest kind of subset of those that we can reasonably do. And then we're going to develop the science in that direction and hopefully in the future develop a product in that direction, a medical product that will actually be used in clinicians long term. I, I guess one concern people may have when you say, hey, we're a FRO, maybe that Typically, research and, you know, when we associate research to academia, it's quite open loop, right? Because mm -hmm. we talk about closed loop in commercial organizations, how you close the loop is to understand value, value addition. And mm -hmm. value is valued by, will people pay for this? Yeah. And I guess in an FRO, because you're not commercial, how do you therefore close the loop and make sure you're actually building something of value? Yeah, it's not too different. We measure our success in a little bit fuzzier way, which is maybe this is the hard part, that we measure our success not in dollars or yeah. revenue or projections of revenue, but in public impact or mm. projections of public impact. Now, public impact can be a little bit difficult to measure. That involves mm. a lot of conversations. We've talked to hundreds, hundreds and hundreds yeah. of clinicians, researchers, patients, mm. caretakers, families, hospitalists. I mean, there are a lot of stakeholders in the medical space. Yeah. And talking to those people and understanding what you're building and making sure that you're going down a pathway that there is a future for this, because there are a lot of dead ends out there. And I would love to say that we've closed up all dead ends. We almost certainly haven't. So that's, again, why where this closed loop comes in is we start kind of going down different pathways. We have regulatory advisors yeah. that we work with. We, again, talk to stakeholders regularly. Uh, we have advisors that have been in this, this business for decades and have unique experience in taking something from a concept like this, a scientific concept, all the way to a, a 
product in the market, which is a very competitive market. So there's a yeah. lot of pitfalls, right? Navigating that is, is the trick. The nice thing about it for us is a lot of the things that are difficult for a company are a little easier if you're, if you're us, if you're mm. working as a nonprofit. So working with hospitals, they're going to be more likely to work with you knowing that you're not mm. just trying to pull profit off of this new device. You're trying to research and understand uh, a future in which we could better treat these diseases yeah. that are a huge burden on the healthcare system, on hospitals and yeah. so on. So we do get a little bit of a pass on some things that uh, if you're for profit are much more difficult. And what would be the number one thing you would recommend for someone building in healthcare? I know you've been doing this for two and a half years yeah. around. Yeah, what would be the number one thing you would recommend? And can you give a story example of how you learned that? Yeah. Well, you know, just to be clear too, this is my first build in, in healthcare proper. I've been mm. in academia. I've been working in neural interfaces for about 12 years. Yeah. Um, I've worked with patient populations in, in studies, but these are still academic studies, right? Which is a little different yeah. than building a for-profit company. Um, but the one thing that I think would ring true for everyone is actually, I just mentioned, was building, or building with stakeholders in mind and talking to yeah. them regularly. It is so easy, especially if you're coming from the engineering side, it's mm -hmm. so easy to say, I've built this really cool thing that solves a problem. And especially yeah. if you're like kind of Silicon Valley tech minded, you go, it, there it is, it solves the problem. That, what, what more do you want? If you just give it to people, we're good. Yeah. That's not enough in healthcare. You need to mm -hmm. understand the cycle of care, the stakeholder interests involved. Like I mentioned, the, the clinicians have to agree with it. Maybe it requires new training for them. Yeah. Well, implementing new training for clinicians could be a decades-long battle, right? Yeah. What if it starts to cannibalize a source of revenue for hospitals or, oh. right? So you're starting to see there are so many of these. Yeah. And patients, do patients even want this? We do yeah. tend to think about that one a bit more. Regulatory reimbursement patients and patients' families, right? They also yeah. have, uh, they're also stakeholders. Um, so... Understanding all of those, it is a complex network. I will not claim to understand it. I will only say that I'm doing my best. <laughs> I mean, you mentioned, do patients even want this? And I know that this is like BCIs for psychiatric conditions. We talked about risk versus reward. Do you think patients with psychiatric conditions, which don't seem you know, necessarily as severe as Parkinson's or like being paraplegic, do you think they will get surgery to put, you know, a BCI in and, you know, support their psychiatric conditions? Are you going for SMIs to begin with? Yeah, I'm, I'm quite certain that they'll be interested in, in uh, surgery. For so many people today, this yeah. is life or death. I would say it's actually in some cases much more severe mm. than Parkinson's for many people. If you are on the verge of suicide every day or you're institutionalized yeah. because you're going to harm yourself or you just have crippling OCD to the point that you can't yeah. function, uh, for those people, life every day is a battle. It yeah. is a, an hour-long outpatient procedure would be nothing yeah. compared to the pain that they're, they're dealing with. So I do think there's a future in which that's possible. It sounds a little crazy now, but yeah. I like to think about back in you know, the mid-1900s when people were talking about pacemakers for the first time. It was mm. like, you want to put something on my heart that's going to keep me alive and beat this thing. Yeah. And at the same time, you're going to power it with nuclear power. You're going to put nuclear power inside my body? That sounded crazy yeah and now it's just commonplace yeah because it's a life-saving treatment yeah um and we know that it's safe and it's evolved and adapted and gotten better and better 
And also yeah. they work in closed loop now. <laughs> um, in fact, one of the people that was involved in uh, bringing pacemakers into the future of closed loop adaption, yeah. so it would kind of speed up your heart rate and slow down as needed, uh, ended up founding Neuropace, which was one of the first oh, closed wow. loop neurotechnology yeah. companies. And it's called Neuropace because pace like pacemaker. So I think that there's a future that that's absolutely possible. And then I think the progression becomes natural. Yeah. You start with these severe, severe cases where it's, you're not adding a great deal of risk because they're already having surgery. Then you move into people that are very severe, then maybe they wouldn't normally be having surgery, but it's worth it. Yeah. And then you start having, you know, Bob says, hey, you know, Jane had severe depression and she's doing so much better than me now. And I only have moderate, moderate yeah. depression. Why can't I have this thing? Yeah. And then it sort of becomes a snowball effect. And eventually, you know, it finds its balance in the risk reward trade-off landscape. And I do think that that balance will end up being mm. far, far further than most people would think of it today in that many people would elect to have this if it yeah. provides value to them. And eventually, maybe, in you know, not too distant future, unimpaired people too. Things like uh, sleep, or who of, who of us hasn't had anxiety at some point, right? Yeah. What constitutes a clinical form of anxiety versus mm. a non-clinical one? That becomes a gray area. Yeah. And we know that these are, you know, I, I know that a tiger is not about to jump out, but my midbrain is still afraid of or having anxiety about something, even though I'm just laying in a bed completely safe, right? Helpful or adaptive as a brain state. Maybe we can help with that too. We talked about Moore's law briefly. Mm. What are the risks of a patient coming in to get this procedure and then things changing drastically within a year or two? And so now, now they have already a BCI in, but it's like, like iPhone 10 and mm -hmm. like now iPhone 15 is out. So the current state of implantables today is that if you implant something for one indication or purpose, yeah. And then later on you develop a different one or the thing that you had sort of evolves or new net technology comes out. The old implant has to come out, new one has to go in. Yeah. There really aren't many examples of changing the software of an implant to update its functionality. Yeah. And that is one of the core things, that is kind of the core thing that Forrest wants to create is here's an implant that because it has such yeah. wide field of view and it can see so much of the brain, that if a scientific breakthrough comes along that, hey, this biomarker is okay, but this other one that involves this other circuit actually tells us a lot more, we can just refocus the ultrasound a little bit yeah. and start looking at the new thing. So if there are scientific breakthroughs, let's program to do that. Yeah. The breakthroughs in transduction technology tend to change a bit slower, but even still, the cool thing about going minimally invasive, because again, you're not in the mm. brain, is it would still be similarly a very similar procedure to then take this out and put in a new one. Yeah. It still requires surgery, but it would be ideally a short outpatient surgery and ideally wouldn't be needed more than every decade or two decades or even mm. longer potentially. We want to make as much of the system programmable and ideally externally programmable as yeah. possible for that reason. Interesting. And in terms of the building side, what are the regulatory burdens to software updates, to mm -hmm. device updates? Is it that every time you make a change to the device or the software, you have to get medical device approval again? Yeah, I'm really glad you asked this question because <laughs> it is something that we are trying to do now. And this is where we get a little bit more leeway as a nonprofit. Mm. It gives us a little more time and yeah. a little bit more energy to use to go out and work with the FDA to talk to them to figure out how this should be regulated. Yeah. Because it does change. We need to rethink a little bit 
the way that we regulate implants. Because yeah. as I said, it's not typical right now. It's just starting to become yeah. typical to actually change the function of an implant with software alone. Yeah. I think the closest predicate here, and one that I'm excited about, are wearables. Mm. So you might have a watch, a smartwatch, that has yeah. a bunch of sensors embedded in it that can measure blood oxygen level, heart rate, and so on. Yeah. And that's approved as a device. But then yeah. you have not only first-party developers that are updating software, the people that make the watch, you also have third-party app developers yeah. that are developing entirely new applications. I th and those are developed right now under a different framework where the device is approved by the FDA, mm -hmm. but then the software is approved separately. A software mm -hmm. is a medical device, or SAMD. Yeah. And we think that this type of approach for implantables could make a lot of sense, too. Interesting. And what would you say is the number one thing not to do when building in healthcare? And can you give a story example of how you learned that? <laughs> Impatience. Um, okay, so don't be impatient. Yeah, don't be impatient. It takes a long time. Mm. Everything about this is going to be at timescales that make yeah. tech founders or Silicon Valley kind of traditionalists um, a little bit uncomfortable. Mm. So historically, devices of, I think the average is $91 million to develop wow. a hardware device implantable. And that's to get it through FDA approval. That's before you actually go out there and market Gosh. it. And it's, yeah. it's a lot of money. So it's expensive. I think, I don't remember what the timeline is, but it's on the order of 10 years. So this isn't something that you're going to get an ROI in three. So you're, yeah. like I mentioned, you're dealing with all of these stakeholders. You need to get them on board. That takes time. And then that's just to get you to market. Then yeah. you're going to still face a long churn of, okay, physicians are, you know, kind of old-fashioned physicians have their way of doing things. They're not going to change overnight. They're going to take time. Some of the early adopters are going to pick this up, and then it's going to kind of be a little bit of time until other people start to pick it up. Yeah. And of course, that speed depends on how much value you provide. Some things move quicker than mm. others, but almost universally, we're talking timescales that are significantly longer than traditional tech scale-ups. So I would say it's, it's really about take a bit, little bit of resilience and a bit of grit. It's going to take some time. And I guess with Forest, what you're trying to build is essentially the infrastructure of BCIs that will allow uh, future startups or labs, et cetera, to build on top of. Mm -hmm. What do you think are the three craziest applications of this <laughs> that, that you see could be possible in the next 10 years? Oh, um, okay. One of my favorites is visual decoding. Mm. And this is because this has already been done. You can do this with functional MRI today. The work of Jack Gallant's yeah. lab at UC Berkeley and one of yeah. his former trainees, Alexander Huth, who went to, to Texas now and is a professor there, have been doing visual and semantic whole brain decoding mm. using, using functional MRI. Wow. So they're just looking at changes in blood flow that are much, they're not quite the fidelity of signal that we have, not even yeah. close, really. And they're still able to literally show a participant a video and then look at only the brain data, mm. they can reconstruct that video. It's a kind of dreamlike, mm -hmm. flowy version of it, but it's pretty good. You can also imagine face decoding yeah. has been there, face patch areas. And we've done with this with electrophysiology, Doris Sow's group at Caltech. She was right down the hall from me when I was there. Could decode from a monkey's infratemporal cortex mm. uh, the face of other monkeys or even humans. That's pretty amazing. So you could imagine... These things where I mentioned motor is not what we're good at. Yeah. But sometimes we don't really, like, if you ask me to sketch a face, I'm not a great artist. It would take a really long time, yeah. even if I am a great artist. But I can imagine a face with mm. pretty good clarity. And what does a world look like where I can 
share with you my visual concepts. Yeah. In just a matter of, you know, maybe a minute or less, I can sort of put together a concept or I can use semantic decoding to build you a story and, you know, you can start plopping in here a little bit of generative AI to fill yeah. in the gaps, right? So it's, it's those sort of things where like human AI merging together to take high level concepts and start to put them down into formats that others can ingest very quickly. That's, that to me is like two versions of the same coin there that are really cool. I don't want to derail too long, but on visual decoding, I'd be interested to know your thoughts on dreams and like, mm. can we build a world where people can communicate via dreams? Yeah, I'm not sure. I don't know a lot about the dream literature myself. Mm. I know there's a big group out there, and so I don't want to speak out of turn. It wouldn't surprise me if it's, it's similarly possible. The brain states are a bit different, but... Imagine vision, and there's, you know, I know that there's a study right now at Caltech that hasn't come out yet that I'm really excited for. It's a friend of mine. But there they've actually just done imagined decoding of vision. So literally imagining a concept mm. and then that just being, you being able to decode which concept that person's thinking of. Now it's like early days, this is proof of concept, right? Yeah. But it suggests that even kind of these really internal states with enough training, maybe you can do it. Yeah. That's cool. Yeah. I said three. Okay. All yeah. right. Tunable moods is a really interesting one. Tunable moods? Tunable moods, right? Okay. So it's a hop, skip, and a jump away from tuning mood disorders. Mm. So if you're going to take a biomarker for depression and you're going to learn to treat that, and there's a lot of incentive to do that, right? Because yeah. these are people who are suffering and you want to help them. Yeah. What's to stop you, you know, turning the knob from negative five to zero to also just go, well, why not feel a little better even? Go to two or three or four. Yeah. And what does that mean? There, there are real ethical considerations to go through there. I don't know what that ends up looking like, or even if it works, I don't know. Yeah. Maybe you can only get a person kind of back to baseline. That's something to find yeah. out. It's a scientific question. Interesting. Do you have a last one? I don't know exactly what to call it, but maybe some form of, I'm just thinking kind of outside of the space of medical, right? I think that's yeah. where you're kind of interested is like, what are the kind of wild ideas? Mm. Maybe some version of uh, like synesthesia, Ooh, right? Where it's yeah. like, you could take, look at a brain state for this is what a person, yeah. a person's brain state does when they see the color purple or this mm. shape or this thing. And now let's, Let's actually induce that state as best we can with the neurotechnology when instead they're tasting this or hearing that. So creating or, functional connectivity between different sensory systems. Yeah, mm. yeah. And, you know, okay, so there are real clinical applications there, which yeah. is why I think of this, which is like, what if a person has been blind their entire life? They were born Interesting. blind. Interesting. Yeah. And you want to use sensory substitution as a kind of method for that. There may be applications yeah. there. We'll see. But it, it, again, you take that a step further and yeah. now it's like, well, what about an unimpaired person that just wants to experience mm. synesthesia to gain a better understanding or a different understanding, open their mind up a little bit to the world around them? Very cool. I have one final question for you. Uh, what is the one impact you want to leave on the world with Forrest? Yeah. If I can look back five years or a decade from now and know that I had some part to make exist or cause others even to make exist something, some technological progress or scientific progress that makes a measurable impact mm. on all of these disorders that affect so many people worldwide, I, I could move on a very, very happy person.
So in addition to the Health Creators podcast, you'll also find everything you need on healthcreators.co. That includes our vendor selection and CRO databases, conference selector tool, and also investors you should be talking to. When you log into healthcreators.co, you'll also have direct access to Nurut for clinical development and a community of founders building in healthcare.